This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 7th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. It's been eight years in Afghanistan with no end in sight. What will be the effects of a continued engagement in Afghanistan on nuclear-armed Pakistan? Cato Institute foreign policy analyst Malou Innocent, co-author of a new Cato paper, Escaping the Graveyard of Empires, comments. The notion that we need more troops in Afghanistan is based on the false belief and the false premise that the United States, in order to remain secure, must defeat the Taliban insurgency. What we've seen, at least over the past eight years, is a gradual uh, expansion of the mission's objectives. Uh, The narrow counterterrorism objective that we had in 2001 was to go after Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda organization responsible for 9-11. But over the past year, year and a half, we've seen the mission broaden into an open-ended nation-building campaign. Now we're being told that U.S. troops must protect the villages of Afghanistan, create a legitimate political system, and try and create uh, effective economic uh, uh, development and programs for the Afghan people. Uh, This sort of represents not only just the gradual transformation of a policy, but the conflation of al-Qaeda with the Taliban. Uh, Al-Qaeda is responsible for 9-11. Al-Qaeda is a loose, decentralized structure that we can continue to progress, uh, to make progress on and monitor and capture their operatives. The Taliban and other indigenous groups, on the other hand, uh, would essentially necessitate the sort of broad nation-building campaign that people like McChrystal and McCain actually emphasize and endorse that is not necessarily connected to U.S. national security, and in fact, it would require the United States military to remain in Central Asia in perpetuity, because we'd have to shoot and try and capture every Pashtun militant with an AK-47, and there are no shortage of Pashtuns across the border, and there's sort of the uh, uh, fear, I have at least, that we might begin to broaden the number of enemies and begin to sort of remain in this region for, for decades on end, we can see this evolve into a local and regional ethnic Pashtun insurgency, much uh, farther, much more detached from the limited objective we have we had in 2001, which is to go after OBL and Al Qaeda. What's the other option? The best thing we can do right now is to not only narrow our objectives, but narrow who our enemies are. We need to focus on Al Qaeda, which is not in Afghanistan, as McChrystal's recent assessment made clear. Uh, Al-Qaeda is based in in Pakistan across the border, and you do that through ongoing intelligence sharing and cooperation, uh, CIA and FBI close cooperation with foreign law enforcement and intelligence agencies, also ongoing surveillance with unmanned drones as well. And these are means of sort of containing the Al-Qaeda threat. We can't think of this in a conventional sense of victory. There's no, there's going to be no uh, Paris peace treaty. There's going to be no real uh, sensation of violence, I don't think, within this region. I think this region will continue to be sort of a a cauldron of instability. And the best we can do is sort of contain that to mitigate its rise and its expansion into Pakistan and into Afghanistan. Also, uh, building an Afghan state is neither sufficient nor necessary uh, to uh, preclude any future attacks on the United States. Uh, We can build a stable, non-corrupt, electoral democracy in Afghanistan and still have al-Qaeda reposition uh, their presence into other areas of the world. And we must also keep in mind in this respect that al-Qaeda is a decentralized organization. It can move anywhere. Um, And sort of the notion that we have to rebuild ungoverned parts of the world, well, that essentially means that America must be, uh, must essentially uh, begin a program of this sort of global great society. Essentially, we'd have to go into Pakistan, we'd have to go into Yemen, we'd have to go into Philippines, we'd have to go into Somalia. Uh, Where does this nation-building project end, essentially? And I think we need to begin asking that of our policymakers and defense officials in Washington. How much support does the Karzai government have? I mean, it's it's obviously very corrupt. Our own military officials acknowledge that, and we are propping it up. 
sadly, it's almost laughable to consider Hamid Karzai in any way a legitimate political figure within Afghanistan. Even before the recent uh, debacle with the elections in August, uh, he was widely considered an American puppet. He had marginalized large swaths of the Afghan population. In fact, he got his degree in India, which is, of course, uh, a major stumbling block with relations with Pakistan because of their ongoing uh, hostility with India and the ongoing uh, 60-year hostility between the two countries. So Hamid Karzai himself did not have a great deal of support amongst the Afghan people. And in fact, what we see today is America sort of reinforcing al-Qaeda's narrative. One of the reasons we were attacked on 9-11 is because the United States typically props up autocratic, uh, illegitimate, corrupt governments. And this is exactly what we're doing today in Afghanistan. We are propping up an illegitimate, corrupt government. And sort of, I think if we continue to prop up uh, Hamid Karzai, not only will we continue to see uh, a further uh, fissuring of the Afghan state and further instability and lawlessness, but even more Afghans, even though they don't like the Taliban, they'll turn to the Taliban as sort of not only just a righteous alternative, but also the swift justice that three decades of warfare would demand. This is sort of a survival instinct of, of people, of human beings. Uh, after after three decades of war and endless strife and, uh, and poverty, uh, you would want a local security apparatus, and they turn to local warlords, local tribes, even the Taliban insurgents, for security, simply because they can't they can't know that Kabul will be there um, in, in any way, shape, or form, especially now considering that many within the Afghan National Police are actually considered more corrupt and more predatory than the Taliban insurgents. In addition, Bruce Rydell, uh, an advisor to the Obama administration on Afghanistan, said recently at the Brookings Institution that the United States can pour in the best analysts, the best advisors, the best troops, and it will all be a failure if we do not have a legitimate government in Kabul. And he made sort of the comparison between the United States' position in Afghanistan and America's position in Vietnam. Now, I know a lot of people are immediately repulsed by the historical analogies, but there are definitely parallels between uh, different conflicts. Uh, with the uh, President Neo's uh, DM regime in, in Vietnam, we saw uh, someone who was considered working at the behest of U.S. interests, someone who had largely, largely marginalized his own people, and that's sort of the same developments we see within Afghanistan. And if the core uh, premise of counterinsurgency is to build host nation support and legitimacy, then we've already failed in that regard with Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda is in Pakistan, not Afghanistan, as uh, you said McChrystal's report reveals. What are the stakes for our continued involvement in Afghanistan for Pakistan. You bring up an interesting point, and I think it brings up one of the many costs that we have with this war, sort of the unforeseen or unintended consequences of our actions in Afghanistan. On top of the uh, material, the troops, the resources that we're pouring in, the other costs of the extended nation-building and occupation of Afghanistan are the knock-on effects to Pakistan. Right now what we see is uh, in coordination with the ongoing UAV strikes in the Pakistani territory as well as the increased uh, Pakistani army incursions into the tribal area, we're seeing more militants being pouring in into large Pakistani cities including Karachi, including Lahore and Islamabad and Rawalpindi and this is creating an enormous amount of societal tensions within Pakistan. On top of that, you have a great deal of frustration and uh, skepticism as far as what America's broader objectives for this region are. Uh, we are seeing uh, an increased amount of Indian influence within Afghanistan, and that has made many Pakistanis, not just within the political and military elite, but even people on the street, fear that the United States is either complicit or incompetent with India's objectives uh, within Afghanistan. This does not gain the support of the Pakistani public. 
And that would, of course, hinder what the army and what the ISI, the intelligence agency within Pakistan, can do. Uh, on the one hand, they are um, they are amenable to uh, UAV strikes on their territory, but there's a limit on what they can do because America's policies are so uh, unpopular domestically within Pakistan. So it's sort of creating this, this not just this trust deficit, but a limit on what we can do, especially when you consider that the strategic problem between India and Pakistan are, is having a direct impact on the stability in Afghanistan. Due to increased Indian influence in Afghanistan, the Pakistanis have no incentive to stop allowing militants to pour over their very porous border and allow Afghanistan to become great, even more destabilized. So you have countries in the region that have an incentive to see Afghanistan remain weak, and you also have countries in the region that have an incentive to see America fail. Malou Innocent is a Cato Institute foreign policy analyst and co-author of a new Cato paper, Escaping the Graveyard of Empires. You can download the paper at cato.org.